Welcome to episode 35 of Let's Riot. We make space to answer hard questions that God's people face. In fact, this new series that we're doing, I like to call If the Holy Spirit Had an Advice Column. Because, of course, He has given us advice. He has given us the knowledge we need to make it through this life. It's the Bible. So we are going to get into the Bible and answer a spicy question, as I called it last week. If you didn't tune into last week's episode, I encourage you to. We had an incredible conversation on the mother heart of God. In fact, I was shocked at the conversation and really kind of the nerves that we hit with that conversation. But it's important to note that we are not trying to make God a woman. No, because God doesn't have a gender. And although culturally and historically we've referred to him as male, he does in fact have a mother heart. It's in scripture and it's important to remind ourselves of that because it's important to see that God does not disassociate or devalue women, which is going to lead us into our next conversation. And we're going to answer a question submitted by you. What about women in leadership? Man, oh man, this is a conversation that's been debated within church history for a long time, and it's resurfacing like none other in today's day and age. Personally, I've also had this question. I grew up in a church background that did not support women in leadership. But as I got older and I've established my faith as my own and started walking with Jesus myself, I've asked him this, is it wrong for me to be in leadership? Is it wrong for women to speak up in church? And so I was nervous and excited when this question got submitted. And we're going to dig into this question solely on a biblical basis. I'm not trying to insert my own ideas, my own gut feelings, or what I wish was in scripture. But I do think you will be encouraged especially if you're, you are a woman, to know that God does not look down on you and again, does not disassociate himself with you or devalue you. So let's get into it, shall we? Last week, we established that men and women were complementary in nature, that we did not replace each other, but we learned from one another. In the broad sense of the church's history, there have been many spectrums, which this conversation has fallen on. There's the complementary versus egalitarian spectrum, which is basically a conversation that bounces between men and women are complementary. They have their own unique strengths and they also have their own unique places in the church where the man heads up the women in all sectors of life. Then there's the egalitarian, which derives its name from the meaning of equality. This wants to remove all gender roles and say that both genders are completely equal. There's no difference between them and both can do the same I guess, roles or operate in the same way. Neither of them show Jesus's point of view. Both have their problems and we're going to get into it. But it points to another spectrum, kind of an underlying spectrum. The idea of hierarchy versus hostility. Again, hierarchy points to this idea that men are above women in every sector, in the home, in church, in society, that they were meant to go lead out and that women were meant to follow. But on the hostility side, we see that women have a hostile view towards men where they want to rise up and take back the power, take back the roles that they feel like were rightfully theirs. Again, not a viewpoint on either side rooted in the gospel, because on both ends, there is fear that drives them. 
There is a fear of disobedience that we might disobey God and lose our place in his kingdom by reworking the creation order given in Genesis. And then an an even further underlying fear that what if women actually did lead? What would that look like? And what would that mean for, for society and for our churches? It's this idea of there's an unknown But on that hostility and egalitarian side, there's a fear of oppression. There's a fear that women would be placed in roles of weakness and that they could be abused or harmed. And honestly, historically, there is reason for those fears. It's not just coming out of nowhere. But both groups are grabbing at power. But Jesus offers us something better. Ugh. Thank you. Jesus offers us harmony. He offers us a viewpoint and a lifestyle where men and women lead together. In the Gospels, we see that that Jesus advocates for a new perspective where men and women are complementary without hierarchy, which basically means that men and women are inherently different but neither are more important or defective. Now, if you've been around the church at all, you're probably thinking of the debates you've heard where both sides weaponize scripture and pick apart one another using different passages. And we're going to get to that. But first, let's create some ground to stand on. I want to talk about how we're going to interpret the scripture, how we're going to approach the Bible and the things we need to remember about the word we're reading. The first is that the Bible does not contradict itself and it is consistent because God is the source of it. But we also have to remember that we Americans or wherever you might be, in 2020 are not the original audience. There is inherent cultural nuances that we have to keep in mind when we're reading the scripture. And when we dive into it, we get a better sense for what God was trying to convey to us and reveal to us in the scripture. The third thing we have to remember is that throughout the Bible, God is interacting with sinful people. We don't get it right. He has to correct us. He has to lean down and partner with our humanity. And he himself acknowledges those limits and in fact celebrates them most of the time. But just because a human in the Bible does something does not mean that it is God's heart. And then finally, We need to pay attention to when God goes outside of the norm and when we see things shift, even if they are gradual, because God works over time throughout history, not often in a single moment. We ask ourselves, when does God advocate for change, even if it's gradual? And so we're going to start this conversation from the first mention of male and female in the creation story. We're going to Genesis 2. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helper. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground the wild animals and all of the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the name the man gave them was their name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why man leaves his father and his mother and is unified to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, so what does this have to do with women leading or not leading and all of that? 
Well, people might say, well, man was created first, so he should get to be in charge. But there's no real grounds for that, right? That comes later. (laughs) And we're going to get to that. But I want to point out some key phrases here that is going to help us understand the dynamic that God was creating from the very beginning. First, that name Adam, we often think of it as Adam's name. In the original text, that's really the word for man or human. And the feminine version of Adam that we usually translate as just woman That translates to the word Adama, which means earth. So we have man and earth. Pretty cool. Woman is not just, oh yeah, you're like the second man. Adam is saying, you are earth. Now, we also have this idea of a suitable helper, right? And I think a lot of times in our skewed perspective, we think of suitable helper as like, okay, so woman is man's helper, therefore man can be in charge. And woman is just there to help get whatever the man wants done and, you know, clean up the house or help with the kids make dinner. But that is not what this means. Okay, so What this actually is translating to is this word azir, which means helper, but not in the sense of, hey, could you help me out? It's actually this battle cry. Azir is help. As in, I need help. I'm in the middle of a battle. Send me an ally. In fact, azir often refers to God in the Bible, God as an ally when his people go to battle. But here in the beginning of God's word, it is given to woman. God gives Adam and Azir an ally in the battle. That is what that suitable helper actually translates to and gives us a completely different perspective. And in fact, as we read on, that suitable helper is then also translated to Azir Kanego, which means like, but different. Not what we hear as suitable, not God created the perfect wife for Adam to meet all of his needs. No, God created an ally that was like, but different. But why does Adam need an ally in the garden? Well, it's because there's an enemy, right? There's an enemy in the garden waiting to deceive them. And so Adam needs a battle cry. He needs an ally, But of course, this doesn't last because of the enemy. They don't get to live in perfect harmony where they're allies in the battle and they are victorious because they allow their own flesh to get in the way of their relationship with God. Because in Genesis 3, we get this curse that God puts on the man and woman because they have turned from him and chosen to eat from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in a sense, choose to try to become their own God. And God in Genesis three says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. 
Then Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Okay, so this is where things get sticky, right? This is where we're like, okay, well, obviously God is saying that the woman's desire is going to be for her husband and there's going to be this tension between man and woman forever. And so we're just doomed, right? Well, let's unpack this. This idea of tension between man and woman often comes from this passage where it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. For some reason today, we have translated that idea for desire as a negative, as if she will want to take control from her husband and rule over him. This is a Hebrew preposition. This preposition shows up throughout the Old Testament, but it is only translated in this idea of against here. Most often it is translated in a sense that we get to see in Song of Solomon, where the woman's desire is for her husband and that looks like closeness and intimacy. So if we take that more normal translation of this preposition, this, this idea that that desire for our husband will look like cl wanting closeness and intimacy, but because we're not in the garden, there will be a disconnect. There will be something between us. That changes everything. The woman isn't trying to dethrone man because she doesn't see man as a threat, but someone to be close to. But here's something that blew my mind when I heard it. This curse is not talking about how God wants things to be. It's not saying how things ought to be but how they will be because of the fall. Obviously, God did not want pain and division and striving to be a part of his child's life. But he's saying, because you chose yourself, because you wanted to be your own God over me and you thought you knew better, there are consequences. There are consequences until the fall is rectified. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. God isn't saying, hey, I want there to be division between you and man to Eve. <laughs> no, instead, God says there are consequences to sin. But here's the thing. This is not basis to say, at least with that perspective, that women were always meant to be under men. That women cannot work towards God's mission and a leadership role. And if you don't want to take my word for it, let's go to scripture again. Because throughout the Old Testament, we see women being raised up by God and them working not only by themselves, but with men. Because remember, there's this complementary aspect towards God's mission. Just look at Miriam. In Exodus, she is given leadership. She's called a prophet. She leads worship. She was the woman who, after they crossed the Red Sea, she took out her tambourine and led songs of worship to declare who God was. And she also leads alongside her two brothers. Okay, but for... The Bible buffs out there, you're like, yeah, but what about that one story where Miriam got leprosy and Aaron didn't? Okay, let me explain what I'm talking about. 
So in Exodus, we see this story where Aaron and Miriam start talking and they're like, hey, why aren't we like getting more credit for what we're doing? Because hasn't God worked through us as well as Moses and Moses is getting all the credit. So what the heck? And God hears them. Of course he does. And he calls them out to Moses and all three of them are together and God calls them out. He's like, hey, I heard you. And here's the thing. You are prophets. You are appointed leaders, but I do not speak to you face to face as I do with Moses. I speak to you in words and prophecy and dreams, but there is inherent honor given to Moses in the position I've put him in. And you are trying to undermine that. And there are consequences for that. And so God strikes Miriam with leprosy for seven days and she's cast out of the um, community for that time. And they can't move until she is healed from this. And God says, it'll be seven days. And so Aaron's punishment is to watch Miriam be inflicted with the sickness. And for some of us, we're like, man, that would suck to see a loved one suffer. But then there's also those of us that are like, man, he got the, sh- the, the long end of the stick. Like, what the heck? Just because Miriam's the woman, she gets uh, the worst punishment. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing that we forget that God is merciful to his people and Aaron was the high priest. And so if he were to have leprosy, the entire sacrificial system would break down. They would have no contact point. The people would with God because the high priest held that much importance And so God is having mercy on his people at large. And he's saying, I'm not going to disconnect you from me, but you will have to suffer and looking at Miriam and knowing that should have been you. Okay. So want to point out in that story that God does not say or question whether he has worked through Miriam but distinguishes the role of a prophet versus him speaking face to face with Moses. He doesn't say, hey, like, who the heck are you? You're not supposed to be in leadership and I have not worked through you. He says, yes, I have. But your role is to bring me glory, not yourself glory. And I have given my children different roles and praise God he has. Then we, we find Deborah in the book of Judges, who is one of my all-time favorites. We see that she was picked by God, that she was a judge for God's people. During this time, God didn't want his people to have kings. And so he would appoint, appoint judges to rule over them, to direct them back to him. It was the highest level of leadership during this time. And God chose Deborah. And here's a lie that I often believe. When I first would read Deborah, I was like, man, this is a real like condemnation on God's people that there was no one other than a woman to lead out. Like, geez. No, Deborah was not picked by God because all of the better options were already taken or fallen. Deborah was chosen by God because she was meant for that leadership role because God wanted to work through her specifically. We see that she is a mother, that she is a mother to Israel. And yet she's leading. She's called a prophetess. And in her story, she not only leads the people herself, but she invites Barak the general of the army to lead beside her and to work to God's mission. Then we see the wise woman of Abel in 2 Samuel 20. She is a leader of a city and she goes on behalf of her city to God's people and says, hey, let me reveal God's plan to my city that we might not be destroyed. And she does and they listen to her and God calls her anointed and holy because of it. 
Then there's the prophetess Huldah in 2 Kings 22, where the king goes to her because the high priest chose her to speak to the king. There were other prophets, right? But Huldah was known to be a wise woman and to hear from God clearly. And so the king gets instruction from her. And then, of course, there's the famous Esther who saves the Jewish people alongside her uncle Mordecai, working together again, male and female, to God's mission. And then in Proverbs, God himself personifies his own wisdom as a female. God chooses women to carry this personification of wisdom. But then something between the Old Testament and New Testament happened. Because when we come onto the New Testament scene, we see and we hear that the Pharisees would pray this prayer. They would say, thank you, Lord, that you did not make me a woman, Gentile or slave. Right? Pretty rough there. But this idea is found nowhere in God's word. In fact, that's not the only division that our humanity has created. Because in the New Testament, we find in the second temple, there is a division within the temple where men and women are divided and then Gentiles are divided after them. And we are separated into a hierarchy created by us, not by God. Because in God's word, the only division he mandated would be that priest would have access to the inner part of the temple and everyone else would share the outside. And then skipping ahead in the story a little bit, but we see that as Jesus died on the cross, he ripped that veil to where everyone was welcomed into the inner parts of the temple where God's presence dwelled. So not only did he not mandate these divisions, this hierarchy in the temple and in the church, but he then tore them apart and said, there is, there's no hierarchy here. We're all on the same playing field. Okay, but then we get to Jesus's life. And of course, we know that Jesus had 12 disciples. And yes, Jesus did have women disciples. He had a myriad of women who followed them. But some of us can get hung up on, okay, well, he could have called a woman to be a disciple. Like, why wouldn't he have done that? Because Jesus was fulfilling scripture. And those 12 men symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel who were made up of the sons of Israel. And so as he chose each of his disciples and called them to follow him, he was calling the redemption of God's people's story. And then he does invite a myriad of women to follow alongside them. Just look at Luke 8. Jesus desired to have women disciples, which was revolutionary for this time. And we're going to get into that. But we see the woman at the well. God intentionally made time for her. Jesus sat alongside her. And as she said, told her everything she had ever done. He revealed to her who he was. And then he empowered her to go back into the city that she came from and evangelize and tell them of everything she had just found out and discovered and welcome them back into Jesus's presence. That is huge. And then we find Mary at Bethany. More likely, you know, the story of Mary and Martha. If you don't, the story goes like this. Jesus was welcomed into Martha's home. And Martha was preparing a feast for them, cleaning up the house, welcoming people into the house. 
being the hostess with the mostess. And Mary was at Jesus's feet, listening and learning. And Martha goes to Jesus and she is livid. She wants Jesus to tell Mary to help her to get up from the floor and come to the kitchen. And in my head, I hear the voice of, of ages passing where the woman belongs, <sighs> right? But Jesus doesn't say that. No, Jesus tells Martha, there is only one thing that matters. And Mary has chosen that to be at my feet and to learn. And oftentimes we think, well, geez, Martha really needed to like chill out and actually appreciate what matters because of course Mary chose the right thing, right? <laughs> and believe me, I have a soft spot for Martha, but that is a whole nother subject. What we're missing because we are not part of this culture is that Martha wasn't just upset that she was doing it all by herself. She was upset because Mary was embarrassing her and going somewhere she didn't belong at the feet of a rabbi because women were not allowed at a rabbi's feet because they were not permitted to learn from a rabbi, only from the male figures in their life, like a father or a husband. But Jesus makes a place for Mary at his feet. A place that was only reserved for disciples. And he says, Mary belongs here. She has chosen the better thing. Martha, in her being rebuked, was also invited to sit there. It wasn't a one-time thing. Okay, now here is my favorite part of this conversation in the New Testament sense. Are you ready? This is going to blow your mind. <laughs> okay, Mary Magdalene. She was a woman who Jesus had cast out seven demons from. She was a possessed woman and she had a reputation of being the possessed woman. But she was made whole and healed by Jesus. And she was the first to see the risen Jesus in the garden. In fact, she doesn't recognize Jesus at first. She thinks that he is the gardener. And that is why we know that they're in the, in the garden. She is the woman who receives the good news that the fall of mankind had been redeemed and the curse had been broken over humanity, that death held them no more, and that relationship with God had been restored. And it undid the bad news that re was received by Eve in the first garden. How beautiful is that? that Eve was cursed in a garden and Mary was saved in a garden. And in a world where women could not be trusted in court and were deemed untrusted by culture, Jesus chose them to be the witness of the greatest event in history. And then after Jesus reveals himself to many disciples and gathers them at his ascension, we hear that both men and women were there and both men and women received the great commission. In every way, God creates a new covenant people around him that embody harmony and working together of the genders. He fills all of them with the spirit to lead and teach. Because in the early church, we also see Priscilla. She was a church planner with her husband and Paul. 
She wasn't just permitted to lead beside her husband, but one of the greatest New Testament figures that we know of and one of the greatest church planners. Priscilla was a part of his team and a teammate. Then we have Phoebe. She held a leadership title in the early church and she was known to be a discipler of people and a benefactor of many. She moved the church forward. And then we hear mention of Junia, who was held in high regard, who was very honored, and she was also a church planner. And not beside a husband. You see, in the context of Jesus calling women, empowering women, filling both men and women with his spirit and giving both men and women the great commission and of all of the history that we see in the old Testament, it may be a gradual change, but in Jesus time, it was revolutionary and somehow we have forgotten it. That hierarchy is a result of the fall. It was never meant to be a part of our fabric as the church, as God's people living out of his spirit and in relationship with him. Okay. Some of you are like, this is all fine and dandy, but what about those passages that are like, hey, women don't say anything in church in the New Testament and you're to be under men? Okay. Let's face them head on. I'm not afraid, (laughs) right? Because we have nothing to fear in God's presence. So we're going to dig into a scripture and remember the foundation that we laid for the Bible. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the man created for woman, but a woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of a woman, but everything comes from God. Okay. Here's the thing. What does this mean? And should we have head coverings? (laughs) Right? Okay. Here's some cultural context. This is a passage primarily about order and worship for the early church. Prophecy, being filled with God's spirit, had never been practiced in the synagogue, where, as I said before, men and women and Gentiles were all separated because in the second temple, that was a reality, not mandated by God, but created by man. God, through Paul, is not telling these men and women not to prophesy, but empowering them with celebration of acknowledging that the genders are complementary and not abolished. You see, in this time, there the gospel was going about and people were saying, there's no more Jew or Gentile, free or slave, man or woman. And we're like, yeah, that's in scripture, but that doesn't mean that there's no more gender. That doesn't mean that we're all the same. And Paul even goes into that, right? He's saying that woman is not 
independent of man and man is not independent of woman, but everything comes from God. So it was customary for women to cover their head. And it was customary that as people walked into the synagogue, they would know who was man and who was woman because the women would have their head covered. And so in their newfound freedom, because they are filled with the spirit, God is saying, hey, don't forget that it is a good thing that you are a woman. There was nothing wrong with you being a woman to begin with. And I am empowering you, but I am not saying that you're no longer a woman, that everybody's the same because the genders are complementary and showing my nature and you need both sides to fully understand who I am. Okay, now stick with me here. A lot of times we can hear, okay, we're talking about heads. Are we talking about like leadership heads, like authoritative head? Or are we actually talking about heads here? Okay, we are talking about physical heads here, not like this authoritative figure. It's a creation narrative around gender, not authority. God is saying, hey, I created both male and female and that was a good thing. So don't try to abolish that celebrate it, lean into it, empower one another, learn from one another. And this headdress conversation speaks to giving and taking authority. You see, we have probably heard it somewhere in our lives, but just as a reminder, in this culture, a woman's hair was considered her glory and it would have been the glory of her husband as well. And so out of honor for her husband, she would wear a headdress when she was out in public. But if she were to take that headdress off and walk into a worship service with her hair showing, her glory would be on display. Her husband's glory would be on display in a place where only God's glory should be on display. It would be as if we walked into church in a ball gown or our wedding dress saying, Aren't I beautiful? This is not saying that women were not created in God's image. It is a reminder that God created, again, both men and women. It's pointing back to the creation narrative. And then, of course, at the end, he points back to the complementary nature He points back to that we don't only complement each other, but we both submit to God. That is the only hierarchy that comes above us. Okay, but then there's also the 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 13 passage. It says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet for Adam was formed first then Eve. He then continues in verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. All right. So in today's age, that sounds pretty bigoted, right? Again, there is cultural context. This was not written in a vacuum. And remember, this is a letter written to a specific church. So if something seems off, if this doesn't seem to correlate with the character of God we know from the whole book of scripture, then let's take a deeper look. Here's what we need to know about this church. Gnosticism was taking over. It was prevalent in this city. 
And in that belief system, there was this idea that Eve was right to take the fruit in the Garden of Eden because it gave her some secret knowledge. And then and later in the, this book, we'll see further evidence for that. Because in chapter five, we see that women were coming out of this culture and taking leadership roles, but teaching this heresy because it empowered them because they had this secret knowledge. And so they were able to speak or add to the gospel, speak against or add to the gospel because of the secret knowledge. Okay, knowing that Paul takes heightened criticism of these women because they are manipulating the gospel for their own advancement. Whether or not it was maliciously intended, these women were falling into this spectrum that we now know, that hierarchy versus hostility spectrum, remember? Where women feel like they have to dethrone men because they're afraid of being oppressed. These women were falling into that trap. Paul says that women should take the role of disciple and learn the actual gospel before they spoke. They had to submit to God's truth, not their own ideas. He warns that they should not become domineering over men and go towards the hostile perspective because men and women complement each other and hierarchy is a system that we create out of our own insecurity. In verse 13, we see the retelling of the Genesis story to correct this heresy. It's not just a jab at women when Paul says, Adam was deceived by the woman and the woman took the fruit first. Paul is saying, hey, Eve sinned and there is no benefit to her in the kingdom because of that. It was a fall away from God, not into some secret knowledge. And then that piece at the end where it says that women are saved through childbearing. Everyone's like, whoa, I don't want to have to pop out a baby to be saved. And aren't we saved through faith in Jesus? Like, this doesn't, that almost seems like heresy, right? Right. You're not crazy and you're not going to have to pop out a baby anytime soon. It is a mercy at the end that we are reminded that we are saved through Eve's childbearing because she was the one who bore the seed that crushed the accuser's head. Woman was the one who was deemed to carry the savior of the war world. Mary bore Jesus. So even when we sin, even when we fall into heresy, even when we want to take power away from men and domineer over them, even when we operate out of fear and being threatened, we still find hope in Jesus. There is still an invitation to come sit at his table and learn from him. This is not a place where Jesus says, sit down and be quiet, woman. He says, come learn from me. Come learn the gospel, my truth, so that you can go out and make disciples of all nations. We see that God empowers women throughout the history of the Bible, that Jesus was a friend to women, that he empowered women, that he invited them into an inner circle and trusted them when no one else did in this culture. We see that the curse that was found in the garden was redeemed by Jesus in the garden. We see again and again that God says that men and women are complementary. But the only hierarchy we find is created from our human insecurity. 
And that goes beyond just men and women. Because I have found that in the church, we often want to create some sort of hierarchy so that we can establish our security, that we are better than them, and that at least I'm not sinning like they are, and I must be better than them because of X, Y, and Z. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven. We all submit to Jesus. I have this feeling that this conversation will stir up some conversation, that it might hit a nerve, that we might not all agree. And you know what? That is okay. Because in all things, even disagreements, we will enter into it with love. We will go to the Father and say, God, I don't know what to believe about this. Or this person is really challenging my belief on this. And we will hear from him. We will wait on the Lord. We will not weaponize scripture and say, you're wrong. How could you say this? You're reading in your own ideas. Instead, we will learn at the feet of Jesus how to disagree and still love one another. (laughs) What a concept. Maybe that's another podcast episode. We are not dethroning men. We are not saying we don't need our male counterparts. We are not saying that they messed up or that they don't deserve it. Instead, we are saying we need both male and female leaders because in both genders, we see the fullness of God and both because they are image bearers of God and filled with the spirit and given the great commission have a place to lead as they have had throughout the Bible's history.